Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Work Podcast. And today we have an incredibly special treat because the bonus episodes like to talk to all different kinds of people from the book world, booksellers, managers, librarians, writers, authors, illustrators, etc. You can check out have a whole playlist on YouTube if you want to find it all or go to my website. But today for the first time ever on this podcast, we have an internationally syndicated cartoonist of the Rubes cartoon, Lee Rubin, here with us. Lee Rubin, welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here, wherever I am. We'll get into everything in a second, but I have to say, I first found Rubes cartoon, you know, seeing it in a newspaper. I must have been in high school, or I don't even, like, so it was many, many moons ago that I saw it, and then we stopped getting that newspaper, and then da-da-da, then we ended up getting a new newspaper. It's not in there anymore, but I so distinctly remember, and I hope this is yours, because the memory of it is so clear, of, there was a cartoon of a ghost that has hiccups, and then he takes out a mirror to, to scare himself. Is that yours? Uh, yes. Yes! <laughs> I remember this right. It was a Sunday cartoon. It must have been the Sunday funnies, but that was a real long time ago. Yeah, so that's one of my first Rube's cartoon. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and I remember like telling everyone about it. And it, yeah, it was in color, so it must have been a Sunday's one. And then... The other one I remember that I distinctly remember from like then, before I started getting collections and you could see them all, is the one with the clocks, right? You have the two clocks and then there's like one melting clock over the tree. And it's like, oh, those artist types, because it's kind of like that dolly, that Salvador Dolly kind of... Uh... Oh yeah, the melting... Well, that just happens to be in that book, by oh, the way. Oh yeah. I just want to let you know that, because I know you... Not that I'm trying to plug anything, I'm just letting you know that's in the book. <laughs> yeah, plug it. There's a new Rubes collection that everyone should get because it's going to be fantastic. And mine, I just found out, is already on the way. So actually, by the time this airs, I'm probably going to have it in hand. I will probably have read it already. So that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so curious. I've never sat down to have a conversation with a cartoonist before. How does this even come about? You're a cartoonist. Like, is this something that you dreamed about? Is it something you fell into? Like, how does this happen? It was a combination of loving to draw and then beating my head against the wall for a long time. <laughs> if you really want to know, with little bits of encouragement along the way and some success along the way, all mixed in with rejection along the way. That's a really big, long story. I could give you the thumbnail of, if you'd like. Yes, yes, please. Well, okay, so in kindergarten and elementary and junior high, high school, college, you know, I loved drawing. I did not know how I was going to make my living as an artist. And I was working for my father at a, a print shop. This is in high school and then into college. I worked for my dad for more than 20 years. And I happened to be also majoring in advertising arts in Los Angeles at a college. I wandered through a uh, greeting card section of a pharmacy. And I saw all these cards by an artist named Sandra Boynton, which you may be familiar with because she's still very popular and around. And they were just delightful, fun, honey cards very simple art completely not hallmark and i thought hey this is great why don't i start a greeting card company not knowing how i was going to do that i knew nothing about card business at all zero so that was 1978 1979 i started doing trade shows by printing up cards and getting racks made and going to trade shows and finding sales reps and i came up with a line of about 64 cards within a year or a year and a half i don't remember exactly now and so they were being sold all over the country i was still working a regular job though and after oh i don't know a couple of years of that i was getting kind of burned out but then i came up with another idea 
based on the same character that appeared on all the cards, but turned it into a musical note, which became a book of cartoons called Notable Quotes. From there, like I said, there's a whole lot of details in between all this, but super thumbnail. Uh, From there, I did a book signing in Lancaster, California. I think it was a Walden Books. Remember Walden Books? Yes. Well, that both Walden Books and Beat Walden got gobbled up by uh, Barnes & Noble and Borders, and then Borders went away. All the, the family lineage of all these these bookstores, all they're still around today in different forms. And I had met the entertainment editor while I was doing a book signing, as a book signing, and he was the entertainment editor at the Antelope Valley Press in Palmdale, California. We became buddies, and he asked me if I'd draw a daily cartoon for his newspaper. And November 1st, which was just a few days ago, on 1984, the very first cartoon appeared in the newspaper, the very first, and I haven't missed a deadline since. Wow. <laughs> So it's been a long time, but it's been a lot of fun. As I sit at my desk trying to come up with an idea for the day, that's kind of how you get into it. But like if they, there's loads and loads of other information in there that I'm sure it would bore everybody to death. <laughs> that's interesting, Kate, like you'd love to draw. I guess there was never thought to go maybe into animation. Or was that kind of like you said that you worked in advertising? That was kind of like where you thought, you know, the artist side of you would kind of find a home? Yeah, well, my dad was an advertising man. Well, for many years, and I mean, he was one of those like New York City madmen. He really was one of those 1950s guys, wow. but not nothing like the TV show. He said <laughs> that was not how it was. Okay. <laughs> That's fictional, or at least in his life, it was fictional. So I kind of followed it with that. Like I said, I worked with him, the family business, the print shop. I knew I wanted to go into the arts somehow. I just didn't know how. But I also knew I wanted to do newspapers, but I didn't know how that was going to happen. Remember, this is all pre-internet. So getting a hold of people is the old-fashioned way. You find people in phone books. You go to find databases at libraries where they listed the, all the different newspapers. Or you reached out to if someone recommended, oh, you should call that guy. Okay? I mean, that's what I did for the first four years of Rubes. It was wow. all self-education and knocking on a lot of doors and, until I got picked up by a major syndicate in um, 1989, which is Creator Syndicate, and I'm still with them. Is that being with a creator syndicate, is that sort of like a manager or like an agent, the way like a writer would have an agent? Or what is, how does that like kind of translate? Well, a syndicate, what they do is they represent various, whether political writers or, you know, editorial writers or cartoonists or columnists, whether it's humor or advice like Dear Abby or Ann Landers or all the various types of, or puzzles, even crossword puzzles. And they sell those to the newspapers. They have sales mm-hmm. reps that all on newspapers, and that's how those features magically appear in your newspaper yeah. or online, if they're, it's an online paper. That's their job. And then if you're internationally syndicated, so where else? Because, I mean, your cartoons are in English, or is that, so they reach out to other English-speaking countries, or, or is it or for certain newspapers have, like, are part of an international chain, or, like, how does that part work? Uh, each one is different, and especially these days, it's not the golden age of newspapers as it once was. It's all a kind of a dynamically changing business. But I mean, what they do is they reach out to various countries, newspapers, or they might have sub-agents in those countries that will sell for a creator syndicate. Either they'll sell directly or through a sub-agent. The thing I'm thinking is that, so I once spoke to Thomas Taylor, who's in England. He wrote a middle grade novel, got picked up in a bunch of different countries. And then even just going from British English to American English, certain words had to change. So I'm wondering, like, if you got a cartoon, which has so little words to begin with, and if you're selling it internationally, are they targeting an American market there? Or do you sometimes have to change either certain images or or language so that the joke's going to land in those places? 
I know where they're translated into Spanish. They have translators that do that to make it work because, you know, I do a lot of punny and wordplay and that is very difficult to translate because every language has its own idioms and sayings and their own quirks. So it may not always work. Like the Vietnam Daily News runs my cartoon and no. it's in English, straight on English, just like you see it here, because I think it's more for, you know, either expats or, I mean, it could be for travelers. I'm, English is also spoken you know, all around the world by vast amounts of people. So it is understood. And people also use cartoons to learn English, which I found out. Which huh. is <laughs> so they they get to learn the pop culture of the United States that way. That's really funny. I guess it's almost, in a way, it might even be a little bit more realistic than, you know, you know when you meet people who learn English from like a TV show and you're like, we don't talk like that. But our cartoon is not like that because we do talk like that often. Well, yeah, that's cartoon speak. That's uh, something. When I turn my cartoons in, I have an editor that works with Creator Syndicate, and she'll correct me on a lot of punctuation or grammatical stuff. But you also you have to have that ear for well, how does a how does a regular person talk? We're not speaking unless the cartoon calls for the king's English. You speak like a regular person. Right. <laughs> it's almost like blue collar as compared to a great work of literature. It's like the blue collar communication almost, but not in, from the creation side of it, but just from like the language side of it. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense, but yeah. yeah. I'm sure you've seen cartoons where the cave people are, they speak in, in broken, yeah. <laughs> you know, bro or leave words. That's called cave speak. Right. And that's just part of cartoon land because it's how that culture, the ridiculous cartoon perceived culture of it would speak. <laughs> right. I don't know if you see it now as much or when you were first starting out, especially with, with the cartoon specifically, did you see any sort of connection either between advertising that you have to get, like the word of the image, you got one word, one, well not one word, one image, you know, one very short amount of language to get a message across, or even between greeting cards, which has got to be, the joke's got to be delivered quickly. Is there any sort of correlation between that and writing a cartoon? Yeah, I have a whole philosophy on this. In fact, I'm working on a whole book called Think Like a Cartoonist. Oh. <laughs> a very long project um, that's with Rochester Institute of Technology back east where I work with them quite a bit. It's a wonderful, if you've not heard of them, check them out. They're fabulous. Anyway, there's my plug for RIT. But it's, yes, you only have a few seconds of a person's attention span. You want to deliver as much as you can, as quickly as you can in the least amount of time. That being said, I honestly don't care if it takes someone two weeks to get a cartoon. Because <laughs> I think the payoff is worth it. And I've had people say, you know, I don't get that. Then I thought about it. Then it hits you. I like the delayed response. I like to help make people think a little bit. That's what's really fun. It's just a more rewarding experience that way. At least that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, this is going to be for you specifically. So, you know, I'm not expecting this answer might be for all cartoonists. But are you someone that in order to make certain kind of jokes, and especially because you haven't created a fully separate world per se, where it's just a fantasy-based world or whatever for your cartoons, but, you know, it's, it's the real world sort of things. Are you someone you got to keep up on whatever's in the news or whatever's in pop culture, whatever's in X, Y, and Z, or you got to keep up with basic literature names or, or, you know, like kind of you have to do some sort of self-education to be able to make these sort of jokes. Or you can just observe the world and just kind of point out just like weird people behaviors. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. You know, I'm a pretty voracious reader, like okay. consuming whether it's in print or online. I still like magazines. I still like physical stuff. I'm old school, but I do read news stories online and I'm always gleaning articles, whether it's science or technology or medicine or whatever. It's, there's so much information these days, which gives one the perfect reason to have fun 
with lots of things. There's no shortage. Yeah. What really boggles my mind the most with all this is that you have to do it every single day. Is your brain just trained that like, we gotta find the joke today or do you already have stuff already stacked up and pre-planned or whatever? Like, how do you do it every single day? No, there is no stack up or big back or no fault. Yeah. With uh, untapped stuff. It's just training. It's, it's self-discipline. A lot of discipline because you have a deadline. And nobody waits for that deadline. Newspaper editors aren't going to really be that sympathetic if you suddenly don't turn stuff in. And if you have a contract with your syndicate that you guarantee you're going to send them something and then you don't, I don't think they'd be very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also fun. It's like a, a daily mental challenge. Do you sometimes go through more than one cartoon before you find the right one? Or you're kind of at the place, you'll know from the outside if it's really going to work. That changes day to day. Like I say, I like to go to, a, I work in a cartoon factory. I punch in. I know what type of product has to turn out at the end of the day, but I don't know what it's going to be. So it's a constant retooling of the cartoon machine, whatever happens to pop out that day. If you're trying to figure something out, are you, okay, let me think about what I learned this week to see where I can find a joke. Or you're like, you know, we'll do a punt and let me figure out, like, you know, I'm going to sit for two hours now and figure out a pun. Or is it, hit me, hit me with an idea. Like, how does... It's just, just the day-to-day coming with the cartoon. It really, it's, I, I still can't get my mind around it. Well, yeah, be careful what you wish for is another <laughs> thing I fully believe. Oh, well, this sounds like a fun job. Yeah. Uh-oh. The better part of 40 years later, uh-oh, I'm still doing it. What if I went into some other field? It's kind of too late for that. It's not too late in certain senses because I, I am working on other projects, but I this is my first love, is being able to bring something funny and a little bit lighthearted, sometimes silly, sometimes thought-provoking into people's lives. That's really the joy of it. And I don't know if I just diverted and didn't answer your question there. Okay, now I have to remember, I got caught up in the answer now also. I was like, what was I asking? Oh no, because I was asking about like, where are you coming up with ideas? Okay, we're sitting down at the desk, it's time to get to work. Are you just, what have I learned recently? You know, I saw something that was funny, let me see if I can make a cartoon out of it. Is there a process for that? Or are you just kind of like waiting for something to come get you? Well, a lot of it's just penciling, sketching and erasing and sketching and erasing and trying something and trying an animal here or thinking of a word there and how can I make that work with something else. Last year, or the year before, I can't, it might have been last year, for example, you, you remember um, in the news there was a, a party, a gender reveal party in Southern California where somebody lit some balloons or something, there were candles on a balloon and they caught something on fire oh, and it's yeah. a big fire. Yes. And I... Well, I've never done a cartoon about gender reveal, and how would I do a cartoon about gender reveal? And remember, you also have to work in the parameters of a family newspaper, since that's primarily who publishes my work. Right. There are certain constraints or boundaries that you have to work within. And so I was just thinking, well, what, how could I do a gender reveal? And as one does, you would think of the Loch Ness Monster. Okay, you thought of the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> well, because that's what I, I got to thinking. I'll ask you a question. Yeah. What's a common name for the Loch Ness Monster. Nessie, right? Right, and yeah. Nessie, Nessie sort of implies feminine, or yes. the fe- a female, right? Yeah. So unless the Loch Ness Monster is one of those creatures, what is it, parthenogenesis, that they can self-generate, right. you would need a male partner. And what would a male partner of Nessie be? It would be Nestor. <laughs> so, so I went I went through four versions of how am I going to do a gender reveal showing the full frontal version of a giant, um, what do I forget, what's the dinosaur name for those things? No but, idea. But how could I get away with that in a family newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> so then it took me on a two-day odyssey, and I have four different versions of it, and I finally did the fourth 
version. I thought it just came out well because I could show full frontal and uh, not worry about a thing. It's so funny. Oh, so you're not necessarily doing a cartoon a day, a cartoon a day. Sometimes you might do two cartoons in one day or like one cartoon over two days or something like that. Well, if I, that one wasn't coming, I, I mean, I had done four versions of that, but if I put it aside and work on another one in addition to that, and I'll put it aside and I'll think about it and I think, okay, maybe I'll, I'll come back to that. And that's one of those wonderful ones where it just really worked out well. Sometimes you never come back to them because they don't work out so well. But you still have to come up with one anyway. Right. And once, I don't remember where I read the article. It was a while ago about, like, in the English language, I think it was something like the, the Borscht Belt and Jewish colony and this, that. So it, like, influenced American comedy that, like, certain words, like, with a K are sometimes funnier than other words. It was just saying that, like, certain sounds are more reliable for laughs than, like, others. I don't remember the detail of it. But the point of the question is, are there things as a cartoonist that, you know, like X, Y, and Z are what you'll steer towards for laugh, but like this kind of stuff doesn't usually get a laugh, but this kind of stuff, does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. I think really there's humor in, I used to say almost everything, but you can't do everything anymore. Right. So I would say in most everything, there's a way to find a humorous angle, and that is what I'm shooting for. Finding, <laughs> how am I going to find that humorous angle without honestly upsetting too many people my goal isn't to upset people by the way it's not i'm not an editorial cartoonist i would be a terrible one if i was but the idea is to create a something broad enough that the majority of readers will get it but not talking down to this mass or you know majority of readers a lot of what i do relies on the pre-existing knowledge that the reader possesses that the whoever is the consumer of this is if I did a cartoon about Mickey Mouse, but you didn't know who Mickey Mouse was, it would mean nothing. Right. So that's why you have to think quite broadly, but also narrow it down so it means something to the individual that's reading it, that has some resonance in that way. These are all the little sub-things that go into a daily cartoon, at least as far as I'm concerned. Unless you're doing a character-based cartoon, like Snoopy or Garfield or whoever, I'm gag-based, so I can't rely on that. It really has to stand up the phone every day. I can't rely on the... The continuing story. Is most of the stuff that you picked up through experience, previous experience, and through working on the cartoon, or like at a certain point, you're like, I'm going to join a cartoon course or whatever it is. Do they even have those? I'm wondering if it even can be taught, actually. I mean, people can draw. There's fabulous artists, a million times better than I'll ever be, but they're not cartoonists. You have to find that right balance. I don't know. I That's sort of, like I said, that book that I'm working on, the, which isn't the one that's coming out. That's a ways off yet, but it's, you have to think a certain way to deliver the goods in that short amount of time. And it is, like you said, I'm going to get back to that. It is a lot like advertising. It's also just certain brains, I guess, function like that. I mean, there's nothing to do about it. It's just, and either you could encourage it and train it or not. I think you can encourage it, and I think it can, actually, I think it can be trained, but it takes practice like anything. Well, yeah, and then just going back, because a lot of your cartoons also, they're animal-based, where you have all the different kind of animal stuff. So is that just... These are things that happen, or is it sometimes safer to make a joke, you know, with animals? Like, making fun of people, but with animals, because then, like, people will take it better? Does that have anything to do with it, or is it just, this is what it was? Well, it sure softens the blow, don't Yeah. <laughs> you can get away with a lot more with animals than you can with people. I'll say it like that, I guess, because they, they are standing, obviously, for people, because they don't talk, generally. Or if they do, we assume we know what they're thinking, but do we really? I love drawing animals. They're just big and fun. And I've always loved drawing animals ever since I was a little kid. So. Yeah. 
And then this is just because it's kind of like we're saying that like cartoonists, it's almost like a certain you have to know how to almost approach comedy from a certain angle almost. So it's like you got people who can draw, but they're not necessarily going to be a cartoonist, right? So it's like sometimes you have funny people who are not necessarily comedians, right? Because being a comedian also requires, I guess you could say, a certain kind of skill set, a certain kind of delivery. But comedians who deliver one-liners, do you think that's any sort of similarity to like cartoons also? Because you got your one-line punchline almost, but like in an image. You don't have much setup, I guess. You have to write a cartoon. And I read my captions out loud and I rework captions over and over again because you're eliminating certain words that aren't there or adding in some color to a word or some nuance. They fall in the nuance of how you're going to deliver that. You don't want the reader to work at that part of it. You want them to read it so it flows nicely and it delivers quickly. There's got to be that perfect balance between the art and the caption. I mean, not most of my cartoons have captions. Some don't. But even then, you have to rely a lot more on what the reader's experience is, what they're bringing to the table. With a caption that is, oh, I'm trying to think of one. It's weird. I have 13,000 cartoons. I can't think of one caption right now. So, Wowzers. Uh, you don't want to be overdrawn and under funny. That's one of my rules. Don't be overdrawn and under funny. Deliver with as much punch, with a, you know, clean, nice, clean, right in there, get in and get out as quick as you can. Which works. It really does, especially in a gag setting. You don't have that three beat, the three panel cartoon, where it's like the setup, the whatever that middle thing is called, I forget, and, the, and then the payoff. You've got to do it all in one line. There's the, I think, the, you know, one of the major keys to a successful cartoon. Every cartoon, because again, you're relying every day. If you're doing a daily gag cartoon, you're relying every day on that. You can't coast on, not that anybody coasts, I'm just saying in this way, you can't rely on that character to pull it off. It's got to be in that cartoon right then and right now. Okay, so that also just further astounds me. It's like every day you have to have a good line. A lot of us just, we have a good line every once in a while. If we talk long enough, we'll come up with a good line. But you have to have a good line every single day. That's a lot. <laughs> well, well, you hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you really do. I have another friend of mine that's a cartoonist that said, yeah, a guy comes up and then he'll be in a bar. Not, you know, hey, I've got this guy a cartoon and you know oh this must be great it must be easy because yeah, once is easy but try doing it every day for years and years and years exactly <laughs> and you want to be consistent and you hope if you blow it one day they'll forgive you enough to come back and look the next day oh okay well not that you want to eventually blow it like oh i must not have done the reference <laughs> well this is just a total side question is the cartoonist world is it like a smaller you know from the different comedy writing things is it a smaller world or cartoonist world because Especially with, we're not in the golden age of newspapers, and there's only so many cartoons that can get into a newspaper. Is that a small, tight world, or it seems like every day you're like, oh, there's a new one out there now? Well, I don't look all that hard. Newspapers are interesting because there are space limitations in the physical print world, as there always have been. Online, of course, there is. Newspapers do expanded comics, or do expanded comics online that I'm aware of. But also, you have people that are not syndicated or not in any way related to a newspaper that you know, successful, you know, independence, you know, independent event you know, with, with Facebook or Instagram or you name the social platform, the media platform will have stuff out. Right. So that is really good. Now it's developing that in that audience attracted to your work may be the harder part of that or the challenge. Even at, like I say, attracting attention. What do you do to attract attention? I guess you have to be good, but even if you're good, how do you know you're attracting attention? Those people are looking at it. Are they sending you money every month through Patreon or something? How do you get to support? Is it going to be a hobby you're going to make a living at? 
and some people do. I, the world is wide open nowadays, and it's not just your local news outlet, it's the entire world. Right, that's true. Oh, that's a good point. It seems that, well, not only illustrators, but illustrators have benefited greatly from certain of the social media apps because it, they really work well with displaying artwork of some of them. And yes. I'm like, that's obviously great. So, yeah. Do you have copies of every cartoon you've done? Pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Where do you Most keep them? Where? Yeah. Like, how do you store You said like 13,000 or how many? I have a great deal of them digitized, not all of them. Ah, yeah. Ever since, oh, I don't know how many, many years ago, digitation took place, but I really do need to go back and digitize more. That's a time, a major time commitment, and I look forward and look back. You know, that being said, it's nice to have these archives, because there is a lot of information or a source to be able to pull from. And, you know, you can see how your art styles the years, which mine certainly has. So, to answer your question, yeah, I have a lot in digital, but more in physical Wow. Do you draw any of it digitally? It's Because it seems like your beginning stage is for sure with, with actual equipment, but you don't do any of the drawing like digitally. No. Wow. No, it's all the old-fashioned way, and then it gets digitized and for newspapers. Can I recommend something? I think I might have sent you. You know, I've been working on that TV program for a long time. Yeah. With a friend of mine, a very talented filmer named Ryan Johnson. Not the Johnson, the other director, but the, another guy named Ryan Johnson. And in there, I explained my process of first few minutes of it. The pilot's on YouTube. It's called Drawing Inspiration. Yeah, I saw some. I saw how you have the square tape down, and that's what you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. Just what we were talking about digital, I wondered, because some illustrators, even if they prefer, like, pencil and paper or something like that, they'll still do it digitally because it's easier to make changes on that. It's easier, you know, depending on what they're working with. I guess once you have your, like, once you're set and, like, it works for you, you're not necessarily looking for another way always. Yeah. Yeah, I have worked a little bit on a tablet. I do certainly some manipulation digitally once it's scanned in, but primarily still old pencil and uh, paper and eraser, which is fun because I believe he's a 1950s Boston champion pencil sharpener. That was my dad. <laughs> wow. And it still worked just fine. <laughs> That's a pretty good product uh, endorsement. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they make them anymore. But this one still works. And it works. I mean, I don't know. What is it? Getting close to 70 years old. Works right. absolutely. I don't know if you can sharpen a pencil sharpener. Right. Well, unless you have to take the whole thing apart. And who knows what the blade, if you can even find the blade at that point. Yeah. Right. When you make a treasury, because especially a lot of yours are, well, there's one with cats, there's one with cows in it. Do you just get to take all your cow stuff? Well, actually, that would be a law, probably. How do you choose what goes into treasury? I have a variety of different subjects. You know, some by theme, whether it's cats, dogs, cows. Biblical ones. This new book that you were, if I could plug it, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. I, yes, plug it, yes. Roots Twisted Pop Culture, and what I do is I, it's all pop culture-related cartoons, whether it's Superman, Batman, The Beatles, you know, Bob Dylan, movies, radio, television. Because we live in the pop culture world, I mean, we really do. Everything, if it's not, it will be turned into something. <laughs> Disney will make a movie of it. As soon as someone writes a song and someone does a parody of that song, I mean, it's just crazy how much of our culture is pop culture. And so that gives me a whole lot of material to work with. And it was an idea I had several years ago. And this book is, you know, teamed up with the flashy newspaper chain that did it all throughout all their papers. They partnered with a publisher to publish this book, so it's offered through them directly. I don't know if you had known that, but it was an idea that I had several years ago. And it's just a real fun, limited print book. I got a copy. Limited print. I'm in on the print. Yeah, well, I mean, it's probably limited as many as they can sell. Yeah, that's true. So you could just take all of your pop culture ones, or some of them had to 
get cut. Well, I this is certainly not all of them. This is the the, the publisher side. How much could we fit in a book? How much can we charge for a book? Yeah, I guess you can always do another volume if you want. And I certainly believe I have enough for another volume if they would want to do that. But I, I'm the one that we ended up picking through all of these. Each one of the, okay, which one is going to actually play a lot of, how they were going to position in the book. Not that that's, you know, I had a lot to say, great. I had a, a, a lot of creative control over yeah. the project. Because it's, it's a real fun book. The cover is Mickey Mouse in the easy chair, but done in the Andy Warhol style. So I... That was why that I picked style because okay, when you think of pop culture, both Mickey Mouse and the Warhol are part of our collective pop culture. So I was able to blend the two the, together, and that really take two different things and mash them together. I just realized because when you said that the Mickey Mouse and the Andy Warhol are cartoonists officially because it's a parody, stunt for humor, whatever. Are you officially protected on most like copyright fronts from that? Because it's like comedy is kind of fair game. Is that does that kind of apply to cartoonists? Yeah, and it's First Amendment. You know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to make my living off drawing Mickey Mouse. Guarantee you that. And then if I did, I don't think that would last very long, and I would be broke. But <laughs> because Disney is a very big and powerful company, and you know, you know, I understand and I respect copyright, of course. But it's an easily identifiable, worthy of parody or satire, copy card image, as is so much. No, just an interesting because I think in novels, if you want to quote let's say a song lyric or use a company name, you could say, oh, they grab their Coke to drink the Coke, but you have to be careful. You can't quote too many song lyrics before you're going to start crossing over a line. But for someone who's doing comedy, if you're not allowed to touch any of that, then you can't do almost anything with it, right? So that's, I was just wondering how that like uh, worked for uh, cartoonists. Well, no, no one's ever sued me. <laughs> to keep it that way. Amen, yeah. Or then I'd have to start a really big Kickstarter thing to help or go fund me. Right. Okay, so just one more thing, because then we'll wrap up just because time-wise. This other book that you're working on, that like, you know, the How to Think to a Cartoonist, for someone who's so used to, you got your one line, get in, get out, say your joke, is that, oh my God, how do you put so many words together? Is it just because, you know, writing books take time and so it's a process? Yeah, this was an idea that I, I had come up with a couple of years ago. I, so I worked with Rochester Institute of Technology, Rochester, New York, fabulous liberal arts college, but they have nine different colleges on their campus, from science to liberal arts. One of the really cool courses is medical illustration, which I, oh, wow. that, you ever go to your doctor's office, you see those, you know, I had a meeting with the publisher, and the publisher liked the idea, but he came up with a very different angle with it, and what it was, I personally reached out over the course of, oh, a lot of time, 150 people that I knew, and I gave them some parameters to work with. How have you thought like this? And they gave me some personal examples of how they thought like a cartoonist. Uh. Creative. It had nothing to do with cartooning in and of itself, but how they were able to connect random dots to come up with some solution to some problem in a fun way. And so many of these stories are hilarious to me. It's, I mean, they're just... And then I have to go through and compile them and categorize them. And I, I wrote a whole bunch of little chapters, too, that go along with them. And it's been a, I could say, a more than two-year odyssey on things so far. And there's going to be a whole bunch of cartoons in it, too. That's great. Nothing I do ever seems to just take a minute. You put out these long, long projects, which are fun. I think it's, again, it'll be much, it'll be very rewarding for the person that reads the book. Hopefully people will read it, and then it will even be better. 
That's right, yeah. That's an exciting thing to look forward to. So if you have an answer for this, that we always wrap up with the fill in the blank of, we could expand it for you because I love when writers, illustrators, you can do cartoons, newspapers, agents, syndicates, whatever, do X, and I really don't like it when X. I mean, you could use movies or books or whatever if you want to, or we could do a cartoon, whichever one you want to do. I like it when they say, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I prefer that because, you know, for every, you know, one yes you get, you get like 50 no's. That's true. There's the whole survivor thing, you know, the persistence thing. You just keep plugging away. Hey, if you think you're good enough, you just keep persisting at it. Maybe you'll even prevail. Right. I have binders of reject letters from beginning from, you know, 30, I don't know, whenever it was I started, you know, 1984. But there were enough people that said yes that were very encouraging that I kept doing it. So more of a focus on the positive way than these terrible people that say no, these terrible, <laughs> terrible I mean, look, at didn't Dr. Seuss have like 39 rejects before or whatever his first book? I mean, you read that in constantly about movies and TV shows and, you know, like, how did there be this massive success? Yet, you know, the backstory, it, oh, it turned down a dozen times. Right. You know, which is more often than not. Yeah, it's you know? true. For those inspiring writers out there. Yeah, you get rejected. You're just like all the rest of us. You can be a success in the making with each rejection you get. And if you have very quick success, kiss the ground. Whoever hell, you know. Right. It's not usually like that. Right. Well, there's also maintaining a career after the initial success also. So that's well, also fun. That is true. A lot of people say, well, that could person their break because their father or mother were in that. Yeah, but if you don't keep that going, you'll be a one-hit worker. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's so interesting. This has been so much fun. Like, like I say, it's, I'm glad you reached out. I, I get to be a philosopher for an hour. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Work podcast featuring cartoonist Lee Rubin. To find out more about Lee Rubin and the Rubes cartoon, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My World Podcast and all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My World Podcast. Check us out at el10about.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.